I have a lot of favorite books. Twilight isn't actually one of them. I am, however, unconditionally and irrevocably obsessed with it. I read it as a middle schooler and went through the exact same really heavy Twilight phase that everybody went through when it was published in 2005. I had a friend whose mom bought her every book and then I would borrow it and read it under my desk in sixth grade. I was, um, I was team Edward for all of book one and then pretty much as soon as Jacob got a storyline in, in the second book, I was team Jacob for the rest of the way. I saw the movies at midnight with my friends and I cried at all the key plot points and I imagined what my life would look like with a perfect eternal soulmate. Then, like everybody else, I decided it was tacky. I'd see clips of Twilight with those god-awful guitar riffs and I would cry laughing, wondering how it was that puberty managed to convince me that these movies, all five of them, and books, all 2,446 pages of them, kept me so captivated that I thought of nothing else for years. It was all fun and games as a college student, making fun of the intensity of Edward's gaze and the repressed gay Kristen Stewart as desperately heterosexual Bella Swan, until you realize that for every moment that Twilight was pitiful, you were right there, reading it under your desk, equally deserving of pity. I feel qualified to judge the Twilight series, not just because it's been such a big part of my life, but because... When I went to a university with a 97% acceptance, I conveniently got myself on track to take only classes where I could watch movies and read books. Yep, some say it's a wasted degree, but uh, I say there's no one better to do this series. Plus, um, like a lot of people who have free time and enjoy reading, I've read all the gender studies staples. The Feminine Mystique, The Second Sex, Sister Outsider, Body Keeps the Score, Cunt, and I'll list all these in the description. You're going to find extensive show notes for every episode. You can read some of them yourself or take my word for it that they provide insight. Although I don't actually recommend taking my word for anything. As a listener, you get to hear me take Twilight very seriously. But please, fight me in the Instagram DMs. I'm really not that serious of a person, but I've spent months of my life putting this project together by, you know, gathering source material from Twilight cross-referencing the relationships and antics and lore with Buffy the Vampire Slayer and finding support for my arguments in other feminist literature. So at this point, when I sound super serious, it's because, like, <laughs> I kind of am serious about this at this point. But, um, check me on it anytime, please. When I reread Twilight as an adult a couple years ago, I realized that the relationships depicted in the Twilight series are more than just cheesy. They set a really horrible example of love and check a lot of boxes for emotional abuse. Hulu put all the movies up a few months ago, and with nowhere to go during quarantine, I watched them all back to back to back, and my jaw was on the floor with how absolutely disgusting these characters are as role models. Then, Midnight Sun came out in August, which is Twilight written from Edward's perspective. It is shot for shot the same exact story as Twilight, but it takes you inside the mind of the vampire gaslighter himself. I thought I was done after that. I was like, okay, I've read the original series. I've reread some of the original series. I've read this one from Edward's perspective. But then I was wandering around Barnes & Noble and I found Life and Death, which is yet another retelling of Twilight shot for shot, but with a totally gender-swapped cast of characters featuring Bo instead of Bella and Edith instead of Edward. This book came out as the 10-year anniversary of Twilight in 2015, but I just recently heard of it. That's when I decided that I had to start lining up the discrepancies between the portrayal of men, women, and relationships in Twilight from the vantage point of a queer, afab adult on behalf of the confused and desperate middle schooler that first read these books. 
It's unfair to say that the series is outright bad because it's not. The book sold over 100 million copies, and the five movies had a combined box office of over $3.3 billion. It also spun off into the Fifty Shades of Grey series, in case you didn't know. Fifty Shades started out as Twilight fanfiction. Google it. And clearly, it can still hold my attention. I'm, like, more than that, I'm completely engrossed, and I'm trying to sort through some of these dark revelations I've had about the story that's been embedded in my mind for just about 15 years. Considering the impact Edward and Bella and Jacob had on my early romantic years, and considering that this story has been around for more than half the time I've been alive, I have no reservation saying, Stephanie Meyer ruined my life. So this is the first episode of an eight-part series going into the depths of all the elements of Twilight and its influence. I suspect that if you've made it this far, you're one of the millions of people who are familiar with the Twilight Saga, but I'd like to warn you that every single episode will contain spoilers of the entire movie series and all the books, including Midnight Sun and the gender-swapped rewrite Life and Death. I'd also like to let you know in advance that in order to really go over why I'm both addicted to and repulsed by the Twilight Saga, I will be going over some hallmark traits of verbal abuse emotional manipulation, and other forms of domestic violence. If you've seen Twilight, you've already witnessed these things, especially in that last movie. That movie's traumatic as all crap, but there's a trigger warning. Originally, there are four books and five movies. The book titles are Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and Breaking Dawn. The Twilight book cover, for anyone who needs a refresher, has a pair of ivory-skinned hands gently holding a bright red apple. New Moon has the same color scheme, this time with a dangling white ruffled tulip with red edges. Eclipse has a frayed piece of red ribbon, and Breaking Dawn has a chessboard with a white queen and a red pawn. For the 10-year anniversary of Twilight, Stephanie Meyer released Life and Death, which has a green apple in one masculine hand. And if you haven't seen the cover of Midnight Sun yet, it has the glorious photo of a pomegranate I've ever seen in my life. So... When the movies were released, Breaking Dawn, the last book, was split into two parts, similarly to how the final installation of Harry Potter was split into two parts the year before. Since Breaking Dawn has 756 pages, it really is possible that it was split up to make sure everything was covered, but it's pretty much equally possible that they split the last movie to milk the cash cow for another year. When I refer to any of these books or movies, the story is exactly the same. There's not really any difference between the books and the movies. Stephanie Meyer worked closely with the movie creators, and pretty much anything that happens in the movies also happens in the books. She knew that the diehard fans that read the books before the movies came out had super high expectations for the movies, and she wasn't okay with letting them down. So the book series and the movie series are deeply intertwined, and all of them help compose the greater Twilight Saga. Twilight primarily takes place in Forks, Washington, where it always seems to be raining, the perfect cover for a family of vampires who cannot go out into the sun. Forks is a small place. It's also a real place, with a population of about 3,900 people at the time of this recording. It's a little bit over four square miles and didn't even officially become a town until 1945. 
The Quileute tribe ceded their land sometime in the 1880s and were forced to live on the Quileute Reservation in nearby La Push, which also comes up in the Twilight Saga and is also a real place with a real history. Though the Quileute don't come up a whole heck of a lot in the first book, Jacob Black and the Quileute tribe play a huge role as werewolves in the Twilight Saga because of their treaty with the local vampires who are hellbent on violating their boundaries. The only time it really comes up in the first book is when Bella and her friends make a trip to La Push Beach and Jacob tells Bella the lore that Edward and his family are quote-unquote cold ones, aka vampires. Bella Swan is a high school junior who moves to Forks to live with her police chief dad, Charlie, after life with her mom in Phoenix, Arizona gets a little too chaotic and depressing to keep working. She figures that since she spent a good chunk of her life only seeing her dad for a visit every summer, it wouldn't be the end of the world to spend the rest of her high school career with him. Her mother, Renee, and her stepdad, Phil, do a lot of traveling because Phil plays minor league baseball. Very cool. So it's not like she's got too normal of a home life in Phoenix to begin with. Bella loves her mom and will do anything to make her happy, almost constantly putting her mother's needs before her own. Now, Maybe it's because Stephanie Meyer had some time to think on Bella's relationship with Renee before writing Midnight Sun and Life and Death, but these later stories dwell a whole lot more on the parentification of the child. By the way, the internet calls Midnight Sun and Life and Death as prequels, but rewrites is honestly more accurate description. I have plenty more theories on why the first Twilight book neglects to point out Bella's flawed relationship with her mother, but those come next week in the Bella episode. For now, Bella's just a high schooler with high school problems. The high school in Forks is normal. Bella is used to some big Phoenix high school where it's pretty easy to blend in and not get noticed. Bella doesn't like to be noticed. She doesn't have a strong sense of self. And as Edward is quick to point out, she doesn't seem to value her own safety at all. Basically, she prioritizes being agreeable and has a hard time putting up boundaries. So she does better avoiding people altogether. In Forks, it's rare to get a new girl and everybody's obsessed. She makes friends super fast and has a whole mixed up crew of other high school kids from her classes and whatever that do very high school things like help her study and go with her to buy a prom dress. By book two, they've all but vanished off the face of the earth, but she does start out as a kid with a healthy social life. It's kind of hard to say if Bella is pretty based on just the books. She's insecure and describes herself as average, and the book is written in first person, so we kind of have to take her word for it. In Midnight Sun, I was hoping to get a different look at, like, if Bella's really pretty, but unfortunately, Edward agrees with the first telling of the story that Bella's unremarkable, and he doesn't get what the school-wide obsession is at first. Her movie portrayal is somewhat plain. Like, obviously, Kristen Stewart is stunning, but she dresses inconspicuously in this movie and rarely emotes. So, again, she's not a runway model or anything. She's average. Edward, on the other hand, is drop-dead gorgeous. He's strong and tall and looks like he was chiseled out of stone. To hear him tell it, vampires are naturally appealing to humans to draw them in close enough for the vampire to suck their blood. Makes perfect sense. All the vampires in the series are technically flawless, without pimples or bruises, and they all apparently smell good and dress well. They're... <laughs> in the Twilight Saga, they're people who look like they were airbrushed and ripped out of the pages of a magazine. This is the first of many contemporary updates Stephanie Meyer gives to the vampires that she writes. Any of them could work at Hollister, which is not something Nosferatu could do after, like, a night of trolling the castle, you know? The 20th century teen vampires, like the ones in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, usually wear a lot of leather and long coats, but the Collins wear cashmere. Edward is clean cut, 
but something about him gives off bad boy vibes. The humans can tell he's dangerous if they look long enough, and even compared to other vampires, Edward is the only one in his coven who just exudes super toxic energy. They've all got baggage from walking around on Earth as immortal killers, but Edward takes the cake for most upsetting to be around. I'm sure it's because Edward can read minds. I've given a lot of thought to this. He gets everyone's unfiltered opinion at all times, and he can hear dozens of people react in a room all at once. That's so overwhelming. I think of it like if I were to go through all of my close friends' text messages to see what they were saying about me, except that I wouldn't want to do that because I don't want to know and because they have a right to privacy. But he is used to it. He doesn't even have a chance to give people their privacy. He was turned into a vampire in 1918 and has had decades to figure out how to use this skill of listening in on everybody's thoughts to his advantage. At this point, he's just annoying to be around because his family can communicate little messages in secret without ever having to open their mouths. Also, because he can hear most everybody's thoughts, he's not in the habit of asking anybody how they feel or what they want, which becomes an issue when he meets the one person whose mind he can't read, Bella Swan. The crux of the story is that Bella wants to become a vampire, mostly for the purpose of being with Edward forever and ever. They argue pretty much continuously for four books straight about what is best for Bella. Edward insists that Bella will mourn her human life if she changes, and Bella, who is a teenager, obviously jumps at the chance for immortality and undying romance. It's sort of frustrating to me that Edward can't see what would be appealing about being a vampire, especially when you're talking to a teenager. There are pretty clear pros and cons from an outside perspective. As a reader, there are certainly moments where I wanted to be a vampire. The vampires in the book are beautiful, strong, and they don't sleep, so they have like a ton of free time to read books and watch movies. I've also personally known at least five goth kids who would opt into becoming a vampire if given the chance. Edward doesn't get it. He can't read Bella's brain, so he doesn't understand, and uh, God forbid he tried to ask, so... At the same time, it's frustrating to see Bella in a position with zero life plans beyond high school. She's not worried about giving up goals related to career or family because her aspirations vanish, completely evaporate the second she meets Edward. The whole damn story more or less hinges on will she or won't she become a vampire, and it makes you wish there was a character who could see the future. Like Alice. Alice can see the future. She sees that Bella will become a vampire almost right away. Edward, being able to see straight into Alice's brain, also sees a vision of Bella becoming a vampire right away. Honestly, that's one of the coolest parts of Midnight Sun is that every time Alice has a vision, Edward is just like peeping Tom on her brain and can see the vision as well. So it's almost like he's borrowing her power. Like all throughout Midnight Sun, Stephanie Meyer gets a really good chance to play with the sci-fi aspects of Alice's visions and Edward reading them. So the book is fun to read for that reason. If you're all interested in reading that book, I would say that's the best part. Alice is Edward's more mature counterpart. While Edward easily falls into rage, Ed- Alice is composed and thoughtful. As a human, she was committed to an insane asylum and forced to do shock therapy, and she doesn't remember her human life at all. Alice's backstory feels like one of Stephanie Meyer's underdeveloped feminist nods. There's a rich history of women in the United States and elsewhere being called crazy for being smart or creative. Sylvia Plath comes to mind. Rosemary Kennedy, who had a lobotomy in part because she had mood swings, comes to mind. Obviously, mental illness has been handled very poorly for all genders, which is why you get insane asylum as a common theme for haunted houses. Then there's also the point that healthcare in the U.S. has been historically classist and racist, and still is, so people don't get the help they need. 
When it comes to Alice, who, as a vampire, is a small and mighty force of magic, it's not terribly surprising that she comes from a place of being undervalued but still able to access some healthcare as a human white woman. I say it's underdeveloped, this whole crazy Alice as a human plotline. It's underdeveloped because our author, who loves moon metaphors and antique wordplay, could have done a lot with uh, the word lunacy, which is applied to women originally, as luna means moon, and the moon calendar is correlated with the menstrual cycle, which makes people who menstruate lunatics. That's where that comes from. Also, since Stephanie Meyer seems obsessed with biology and humans' animalistic nature to be addressed further in a later episode, I feel we could have made some ties between hysterical and hysterectomy, but we didn't get an Alice Cullen book. We got Twilight from Edward's perspective, so let's move on for now. The rest of the Cullen coven are as follows. Jasper, who is Alice's mate and former soldier on the Confederate side of the U.S. Civil War. In Life and Death, the the, the girl version of Jasper is like super hot. I just want to throw that out there. I think her name's like Jessamine. Also, I want to throw out there that Jasper doesn't fly a confederate flag or put a confederate flag sticker on his notebook or anything and he literally fought in the civil war on the confederate side so for anybody who still is posting a confederate flag just keep in mind that the immortals who walk amongst us who are actually there for it don't even support it also in the coven we have dr carlisle cullen and his wife esme who are effectively the parents of the household emmett who's a meathead and uh jock type with a the emotional range of a frat guy and Rosalie, my second favorite vampire after Alice. Rosalie is dope. I'm pretty sure her special skill is just being mean and cold, but that's not necessarily a bad skill to have. Rosalie died young as a victim of rape and murder, and it was a really sad scene. Carlisle found her nearly dead and turned her into a vampire, knowing that she had no other healthcare options. That's kind of Carlisle's thing. He turns humans that are dying into vampires to save their lives. Carlisle's a nice guy and he's capable of doing no wrong and he does a lot of good stuff throughout the books, but that makes him all very sort of one-dimensional and that's why he's actually not very highly ranked on my list of favorite vampires because he's not actually that interesting. Anyway, Rosalie. After she was turned, she went back and murdered all the dudes who assaulted her. Most, I would say all in the real world outside of supernatural beings, all murder victims don't have an opportunity to seek revenge on whoever murdered them. So this fantasy where Rosalie was turned into a vampire and got to go back and get her revenge personally is a, quite frankly, the dream. And the closest story I can think of that's even similar is that newest Halloween movie where Jamie Lee Curtis is like a middle-aged woman with severe PTSD and she's been waiting her whole life for an opportunity to fight Michael Myers again. That's the closest thing I can think of. This story doesn't get told a lot. Like, if somebody gets assaulted or, or killed, they just, they're done. But Rosalie got turned into a vampire and she went back and got her revenge. Rosalie's main function in the book series is that she's the exact opposite of Bella. She is a vampire that hates being a vampire. She wanted to be a mother and live life and watch her youth fade. Bella is a human who wants to be a vampire and doesn't want any of those things. Rosalie's like forced to be a hot, young, super strong vampire for all of eternity. And what she actually wanted was that average fade into the background thing that Bella has going for her and she never got to have it. Bella and Rosalie are 
really truly foils of one another. They both deal with huge amounts of self-objectification because of the male gaze. The male gaze is a pretty well-known concept at this point, but I'll explain it to the best of my ability. It refers to the unreciprocated objectification of a woman's body, originally coined by Laura Mulvey to describe the cinematic angle where a man is staring at a woman and she's not staring back. So, from a greater cultural perspective, it refers to the psychological understanding women have of themselves from being objectified, where they start to lean on an outside understanding of who they are rather than an inside understanding of how they feel. As women place more emphasis on how they're seen from the perspective of the male gaze, surveys have shown that there's a negative impact on well-being. The more objectified a person feels, the more likely they are to lose touch of their internal body cues and have anxiety and body shame and other potentially dangerous like mental health things. It's safe to assume that Bella had the typical teenage girl amount of male gaze before moving to Forks. Edward is her first love interest and the first male who really gazes at her up close and personal. Male gaze also applies to, you know, objectification that you'd see in magazines and whatever, but Edward is somebody close to Bella. And uh, when you read Twilight, it's in Bella's voice. You can feel that male gaze in every movement Bella takes. It's always, I glanced over to see him studying me or his eyes were fixed on my face. And just to prove that this is gendered, in Midnight Sun, it might have made sense to talk about Bella's gaze. Like, it might have made sense that Edward would see Bella trying to figure him out or something, you know? But instead, we get lines like, I stared at Bella, and I smiled my careful, human-soothing smile, and my personal favorite, I watched her sleep. That's right, you may remember, Edward spends eight hours a day simply watching Bella sleep. And when you read Midnight Sun, you learn that he also sp spends a great deal of time hiding in treetops and behind buildings to where he almost always has eyes on Bella. I don't think Stephanie Meyer meant for anybody to read Twilight and Midnight Sun and Life and Death all at the same time. But let me tell you, if you do, you want to chase Edward off with a broom. This man is a hundred-year-old dead body standing in a teenager's bedroom reinforcing her paranoia that she needs to try harder to impress him. Get out of there. Leave her alone. Let her live her life. To be totally clear, women are also completely capable of perpetuating the male gaze. Our author is a self-identified woman and feminist, and she male gazes all over the place when writing these books. It's most evident when you read Life and Death side by side with Twilight and Midnight Sun. In the introduction to Life and Death, she explains the changes she made with these estimated percentages. 5% of the changes are because Bo is a boy. 5% of the changes are because Bo doesn't have as much of a chip on his shoulder as Bella does. And after I read the book, I realized that Bo doesn't have as much of a chip on his shoulder because Bo is a boy. Bella is experiencing sexism and Bo isn't, and so he's kind of better natured. So really, that's also gender. 70% are wording changes because she's thrilled she got to do an edit 10 years after the initial release. Honestly, good for her. Most authors don't publish a second version of a book, let alone a third version. So if you're going to put out the exact same book three times, you might as well clean it up. Sure, 70% are just clean up. Great. 10% are added concept ideas, and 5% are cleaned up mythology mistakes. So a lot of stuff related to like Alice's visions and whatever. Then there's another 5% to encompass the remaining miscellaneous changes. I know these numbers are a little bit arbitrary, and, uh, you know, Stephanie... Meyer did not have to explain herself at all, so I'm grateful to see where she's coming from. But I'm doing a very close read of all three books, and I just wanted to 
let you all know that I'm not going to provide any examples that might fall into simple edits or concept revisions. I understand that there's a lot of stuff falling under that 70% of just edits, and I'm not going to read anything into in between the lines that isn't there. Like, for example, there's a moment where Edward agrees to bring Bella's truck back to her house after she gets sick during a biology lab. There's like a blood typing biology lab where Bella faints because of blood, which is funny because she wants to be a vampire. But in any event, at the end of that chapter, in Twilight, Bella is gazing after Edward's Volvo as he drives away, where in Life and Death and Midnight Sun, the chapter ends with the vampire character sneaking the car key out of Bella's pocket. That's just plotline maintenance. It's not some hidden statement about gender. I can see that. You can see that Stephanie Meyer wasn't trying to do anything tricky there. So I, I promise I'm not inserting anything that isn't there. The first thing I noticed when reading Life and Death is the descriptions of women are different than any descriptions of men ever were in Twilight. Jacob and Edward are both Bella's love interests, but she has like more holistic descriptions of them, whereas women are often reduced to their parts. For example, Bella's first time in the cafeteria with her friend Jessica. She made all these friends from her classes throughout the day. She's eating with them, and she looks up and she says, Who are they? looking at the lunch table where all the vampire kids sit. So here's an excerpt. As she looked up to see who I meant, though already knowing probably from my tone, suddenly he looked at her, the thinner one, the boyish one, the youngest perhaps. He looked at my neighbor for just a fraction of a second, and then his dark eyes flickered to mine. That's Bella's description of Edward Cullen. In Life and Death, the same passage exists, but all the pronouns are switched across the binary because the main character is teenage boy Beau Swan and his friend is Jeremy instead of Jessica, etc., etc. So this is Beau Swan going all goo-goo-eyed at some breathtaking girl vampire, more specifically the girl version of Edward, whose name is Edith. The passage reads like this. As he looked up to see who I meant, though he probably could guess from my tone, she looked at us, the perfect one. She looked at my neighbor for just a fraction of a second and then her dark eyes flickered to mine. Long eyes, angled up at the corners, thick lashes. By the way, um, to explain the Cullens, in Twilight, Jessica's giggling in embarrassment as she explains them, but her male equivalent, Jeremy, mutters under his breath like he couldn't care any, any less, but Jessica's giggling, but obviously men don't giggle, so whatever. Life and Death also gets an entire added paragraph to say, I glanced sideways at the perfect girl who was looking at her tray now, picking a bagel to pieces with thin, pale fingers. Her mouth was moving very quickly, her full lips barely opening. The other three looked away, but I still thought she might be speaking quietly to them. And then, for good measure, here's the same scene from Edward's perspective in Midnight Sun. Reflex reaction. I turned to the sound of my name being called, though it wasn't being called, just thought. My eyes locked for half a second with a pair of large, chocolate-brown human eyes set in pale, heart-shaped face. In these descriptions, Bella and Edith are eyes and lips and fingers. Edward is young and boyish. These are written by the same author. Stephanie Meyer says explicitly that neither Bella or Edith wear any makeup, so it's not like they're doing anything to draw attention to their eyes or lips. I might be able to excuse Bo being drawn in by Edith's eyes if there was some kind of blanket rule that vampires have super compelling eyes, but there's not. Like, Bella comments on Edward's fluctuating eye color, but she doesn't see it till she's up close and personal with him in class. It's not like from a distance there's something really compelling about someone's eyes when they're a vampire. And 
We never are blessed with a description of Edward's lashes or eye shape. Like, maybe we could have used that. I don't know. Bella's first meeting with Jacob is a little bit different than the first description of Edward. Twilight says, A few minutes after Angela left with the hikers, Jacob sauntered over to take her place by my side. He looked 14, maybe 15, and had long, glossy black hair pulled back with a rubber band at the nape of his neck. His skin was beautiful, silky and russet-colored. His eyes were dark, set deep above the high planes of his cheekbones. He still had just a hint of roundness left around his chin. Altogether, a very pretty face. This description is a lot more flowery of the description of Edward. For one, Steph has to address the fact that Jacob is not white, yet she has to address the color of Jacob's skin because she's doing the thing authors do if the skin color isn't announced and they are presumed white. Edward is both light-skinned and a literal dead body, but we don't get any sort of description of his skin tone on first sight. Edith gets described as pale in that bonus objectification paragraph, and Bella's first impression has no comment on her skin tone. Don't get me wrong. All the white folk in this book have their skin extensively described as beautiful and pale at some point, but not in the exposition where their appearance is being described to the reader. All right, now here's the description of Julie, who is girl Jacob in Life and Death. A few minutes after Alan left the hikers, Julie came over to take his place by my side. She looked 14, maybe 15, and had long, glossy black hair pulled back with a rubber band at the nape of her neck. Her skin was really beautiful, like coppery silk. Her eyes were wide set above her high cheekbones, and her lips were curved like a bow. It was a very pretty face. The differences between the descriptions of Jacob and Julie are that Jacob is russet-colored while Julie is copper. Jacob has a hint of roundness in his face while Julie has full lips. I think this is a pretty predictable change, and I'd be lying if I said there was a whole lot to unpack here. If anything, russet refers to a utilitarian cloth, if you Google it, and or a potato, <laughs> while copper is a metal. And according to Google, the color of the skin of American indigenous people. That's what Google says. And so basically the boy is rough and the girl is shimmery, but I don't know. It, it all feels weird. It all feels equally weird. I don't think there's a gendered weirdness here. I think there's simply a racial weirdness. A note about Jacob sauntering when Julie doesn't. To saunter is to walk with a leisurely gait and it's kind of like swagger. And it's applied to people like John Wayne. But it's a kind of, it's a kind of first impression that apparently Julie can't leave as a woman. Also, it's pretty obvious that there's a lot of colonial language in the descriptions of Jacob and Julie with the high planes of the cheeks and the bow-shaped lips. Like, it's all very cowboys and Indians and really, it just implies that they're indigenous, but is also kind of reductionist at worst. So, just something to think about. I believe strongly that Stephanie Meyer isn't trying to pull one over on all of us when she writes this stuff. She doesn't write in a vacuum. The Twilight Saga appealed to a lot of people and made a lot of money. However, in the way that life imitates art and art imitates life, Stephanie Meyer also influenced a lot of people. Gender is, as you may already know, a social construct. The biological differences between human males and human females are negligible in our current society beyond reproduction and don't account for the nuances of intersex people or the spectrum of sexuality or presentation that realistically happen. 
like the fact that people with penises are statistically taller and people with uteruses tend to have thicker thighs doesn't biologically indicate anything about who they are or their trustworthiness or their intelligence or anything. Any discrepancies that exist in perceived personality because of appearance are taught from being baked into culture and written between the lines of books like Twilight. I tend to assume that biology has very little impact on who a person is or what their gender is and pretty much no impact on their personality except for how they're raised and if they don't, you know, question that or anything. But it's not a secret or a surprise that Stephanie Meyer is a firm believer in gender. So I'm calling the descriptions of Jacob and Julia Wash because even among the queer community, there's agreement that jawlines are considered masculine and full lips are considered feminine. So be it. That doesn't account for the fact that Edward slips out of the grasp of objectification over and over throughout the series. He's the one watching, not the one being watched. Now, it is possible to negate some of the ideological male gaze that culturally seeps into your life, both as a vampire's love interest and as a regular human reading young adult romance novels about vampires in your free time. In Simone de Beauvoir's book, The Second Sex, she suggests gazing at yourself in a mirror as a way to take back the private understanding of your own image. Can you imagine if there had been a scene where Bella was contemplating her own face in the mirror, wondering what else she was capable of? The bar is actually so low here that I would have taken any sort of description of Bella that's coming from Bella. Like, just her laying in bed thinking, or her, you know, driving to school, or talking to somebody that isn't Edward. I would have taken anything. We get a lot of what Edward thinks and what Bella thinks Edward thinks, But pretty much the only thing Bella thinks about herself is that she's clumsy. We don't- there is no Bella's gaze. Like, there is none. But get this. That line in the second sex got me when I read it with an eye for vampire socialization. Rosalie, who is also dealing with a lot of these male gaze objectification issues, Rosalie- can't take Simone de Beauvoir's hot tip about gazing in the mirror because, that's right, vampires don't have reflections. This is one of those vampire lore things that doesn't really come up in Twilight, but it also isn't ever like explicitly said to not be true, so I'm pretty sure it holds up. Vampires don't have reflections, and they don't appear in photos. Once someone is a vampire, they are eternally reliant on other people's understanding of what they look like and who they are. And Bella's rush to abandon her humanity the rush that Rosalie despises for so many reasons, she's also abandoning her own gaze. Imagine looking in a mirror and seeing no one, or walking past a pond and only getting a reflection of the trees. It would do something to you. As I mentioned earlier, all the vampires have varying levels of baggage regarding their vampire existence. It seems like the most comfortable ones, Alice, Carlyle, maybe Emmett, either had a solid sense of self before changing or have an entirely vampiric sense of self. At the point in time when Bella and Edward are introduced, it would be so irresponsible and dangerous to turn her into a vampire. She's not in a strong place mentally. Like, she's a literal high schooler. And Edward is a great example because he was also changed pretty young and he still behaves like he's pretty young. So, I mean, (laughs) I don't know. Also, no offense to the year 2005, but it's strange to imagine being stuck with 2005 sensibilities for the rest of forever. Edward's very old-fashioned, obviously, and an alleged gentleman because he learned about romance during the First World War and never really experienced it. I'm 
pretty sure he never had sex as a human, and I'm pretty sure Bella's is first, but that's for another day. Bella is into his old-time fashions, I guess, because she reads a lot of Jane Austen and other classics. She's an old soul, and according to her mother, she was born 35 and gets more middle-aged every year. She listens to Debussy. This no doubt appeals to Edward because he's an elderly man. He doesn't have to get hip to any of her interests because her interests are conveniently archaic. Absolutely no shade here, just facts. I think this is also a smart marketing move to prevent the book from aging. Like, it's bad enough that when Bella's googling the word vampire, she has to wait on dial-up internet, but it'd be so cringe if she was also, like, obsessed with the black-eyed peas. <laughs> but that would just be a different book. So props to our author on knowing how to appeal to a broad audience. It's kind of funny that Edward and his family are completely contemporary in every other aspect except gender and romance. They don't sleep in coffins or flinch at the sight of a silver cross. They don't turn it to ash when the sunlight hits their skin. There's a bunch of stuff that's just brushed off like, no, no, that's just like Dracula. That's not how real vampires exist. Their house is all modern with sunlight and hip furniture and all this. It's fun, of course, to read because vampires and werewolves have already been written about extensively and Stephanie Meyer had to keep it fresh somehow, but I also think it's funny that somehow Edward is allowed to wear sweaters from the Gap because he's fresh, but also allowed to be overbearing and controlling in his relationship because he's from a different time. So, which is it? Finally, before I wrap up this week's episode, I'd like to offer up some recommended reading on the topic of language in fiction. There's a Wall Street Journal article called Men Shout and Women Scream that statistically analyzed what different words and phrases are used for men and women in fiction, like how men characters are written to shout and women characters are written to scream. Another example is that women murmur and men mutter. In fact, the five most disproportionately used verbs for women are murmured, shivered, wept, screamed, and married, while the five most for men are muttered, grinned, shouted, chuckled, and killed. I think reading this article when it came out in 2017 contributed to my obsession with finding petty faults in Stephanie Meyer's writing. Plus, she gave me a gender-swapped rewrite to work with, so I owe her nothing but thanks for the goldmine of character texts that she's provided. Next week, we're talking about why reading these books side by side made me less Team Edward or Team Jacob and made me want to be almost completely Team Bella. This podcast was written, recorded, and edited by Susie Shelton. The theme music is by Alexis Lopez. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review, share with your friends, and consider tuning in to our sister podcast, Nurmer Nurmer, or following Nurmer Nurmer on Instagram. You can DM any feedback or questions to that account and I will get back to you. All sources used for this episode are in the description. If you or somebody you know has experienced sexual assault, please know that you are not alone. The number for the sexual assault hotline is 1-800-656-4673. It's confidential and available 24 hours a day. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline phone number is 800-273-8255. Special thanks to you for listening to this podcast, and extra special thanks to Stephanie Meyer for ruining my life.